0: For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower dot com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or Sleepnumber.com. dot com.
1: This podcast exists because of listeners who support it at decodingtv.com. dot com. Become a member and get access to ad free episodes and exclusive bonus episodes for the Decoding TV podcast and a Cast of Kings podcast. Thanks to everyone at decodingtv.com dot com who makes this podcast possible.
0: Do you know why? a ship floats
1: and a stone cannot. Because the stone
0: sees only downward.
1: The darkness of the water is vast and irresistible. The ship feels the darkness as well, striving moment by moment to master her and pull her under. But the ship has a secret.
0: For unlike the stone, her gaze is not downward but up. Fixed upon the light that guides her. Whispering of grander things than darkness ever knew.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Decoding TV, a podcast covering the latest and greatest in television. I am David Chen. And I'm Don Marshall. On this episode of Decoding TV, we're going to be covering The Lord of the Rings, The Rings of Power, episodes one and two, which just premiered on Prime Video. And I'm really excited to dive into the show with Don Marshall, who is... One of the internet's best experts about Middle-earth and everything Lord of the Rings. I'm blushing, David, but thank you. (laughs) Before we get into our conversation about these episodes, though, I do want to just outline what our approach is going to be. We are going to assume that you have seen or at least have familiarity with many of the major plot points from Peter Jackson's The Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring trilogy, as well as The Hobbit trilogy. Um, but we will not assume you have any other knowledge of the show other than what you have been watching in the episode. So we won't assume you've read the appendices of a Silmarillion. We won't assume that you know what happens to these characters. We're going to be very much approaching the Lord of the Rings, the Rings of Power from a show watcher's perspective. So if you're just watching this from the perspective of someone who maybe watched the Peter Jackson movies a long time ago uh, and wants to enjoy this show fresh, uh, that is the approach we're going to take. We're not going to spoil anything that happens to any of these characters in the Rings of Power. Uh, at times, Don Marshall may speculate or theorize on what some of the things happening in the show are. If he does that, we will give you a little warning in advance if you don't want to potentially be spoiled by Don's speculation. But even Don doesn't know things. He just he has a lot of information that he's drawing from that you don't have, and he's making educated guesses. Uh, but that is going to be our approach with spoilers for this podcast. So just want people to know before we get into it. The Lord of the Rings, the Rings of Power, just premiered on Prime Video. Episodes one and two debuted. Episode one, Shadow of the Past. Uh, Episode two, Adrift. Both of them directed by J.A. Bayona. Uh, The first one was written by J.D. Payne and Patrick McKay. The second one was written by Jennifer Hutchinson. Uh, And let's start Don Marshall by talking about what we thought about the episodes. I
2: really loved the first two episodes. I think they did a great job for me as a Tolkien sort of lover i i understand that it's an adaptation so i'm very curious to see different people's takes on tolkien and whenever i approach an adaptation of anything really but especially tolkien i always want to make sure that they capture the spirit do i feel like i have been transported back to middle earth and i really think they captured that in a very profound way for me
1: i also really enjoyed these two episodes i'll say a couple quick things about them first of all all the money's there on screen. I, I host a podcast called The Filmcast, and my co host was remarking this is what you can get when your above the line talent is not like A list talent that you need to pay 20, 30 million dollars to, right? Like, uh, a lot of these people are relative unknowns. And I actually think not only does that result in more money being put to what you see on screen, but uh, it's actually better for the story as well. Like, you I can agree. really imagine these characters, as opposed to if like Leonardo DiCaprio was like a Harfoot, you'd be like, that's, that's Leonardo DiCaprio as a Harfoot. Uh, <laughs> it's like when Matt Damon shows up in interstellar, it's like,
2: Oh, that's Matt Damon. That's Matt not Damon. a space man.
1: No, exactly. Exactly. Right. Um, that's the Martian guy anyway. Um, <laughs> so I actually think it works to their, uh, to their benefit that you're like really imagining these characters in these roles. And like, they, they kind of embody, uh, the characters for all intents and purposes. Um, it's very much taking a Game of Thrones-esque approach to the story, which is to say we start by like jumping around all over the place, right? And that is not necessarily the story they had to tell, right? Like they could have just told it from Galadriel's perspective. They could have told it from just Elrond's perspective. Like they could have done a number of things, but they decided to take this kind of approach where we're meeting and getting invested in all these different characters from around the Middle-earth universe, uh and i think that that is worth noting as kind of i guess a a template with which we uh visit modern fantasy worlds these days is kind of we're we're getting a whole 360 picture of everything that's going on mhm and
2: and i think they did a really great job just sort of uh creating a feeling of like obviously we we start with with Galadriel. I won't get into episode specifics too much, but it definitely feels like a game of Thrones vibe where we're, we're bouncing all around these various kingdoms that are in and around middle earth.
1: Yeah. 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 Um, I think that I am interested in some of the storytelling decisions they made. Uh, Mm. and I will say I was confused at a couple of them and we're going to talk about that and you're going to help clear things up for me and the audience. (laughs) Um, but, the biggest challenge I think they've set out for themselves is that this is basically a prequel and it does have some prequel vibes uh, because many of the major characters are characters that we knew in the Lord of the Rings movies, right? Right. And also we know what happens to them. Mm-hmm. And so the question is, can you create enough dramatic tension to still make those stories interesting? Like, we, we already kind of know what happens with the rings of power, right? Like, we kind of know that ev- eventually what happens at the end, we kind of know what happens with Sauron at the end, right? Um, we know that Galadriel survives to the Fellowship of the Ring. Ra- so it's like, there's all these questions that have already been answered. Mm-hmm. And the success of a show like this is going to depend on how well can it introduce new questions that are interesting to the audience, mm-hmm. right? Um, and Uh, how well can it come up with something of its own to say about society and the world at large? Um, So, so far we don't really have a clear sense of how that's all going to end up. Obviously we're just two episodes into one season of what may be multiple seasons, but uh, I'm intrigued and I am dazzled by how good the show looks. There are so many moments that are visually arresting and uh, I had a great time watching the first two episodes. So Let's dive into it, Don. Now, Let's do it. I do want to also call out, right, before we even get to the plot, this show does something that uh, House of the Dragon, Game of Thrones show, did this season, which is you have a first episode with no title sequence and then a second episode with the title sequence. Yes, I noticed that too. Interesting approach. Uh, And I think the idea is... When you're watching the first episode, you're kind of in this world. You, they, mm-hmm. they don't want to pull you out of the world and remind you that you're watching a television show. Right. And so you're just right into the world. And then it's only when you come back for the second episode that they're like, okay, you, you, at this point, you know you're watching a TV show. Here's the title sequence. This might be one of the most beautiful title sequences of all time, I think. Really? You think I, so? I, I loved it because... What you're seeing is like this sand kind of mm-hmm. uh, vibrate and then form different shapes and formations, mm-hmm. uh, and you you kind of feel like the sand is trying to communicate the vast expanse of time mm-hmm. through like what it's doing, and then also like the presence of evil through like different yeah, colors. There's that little so, darker yeah, shade of, of yeah, sand yeah, yeah. that snakes through. And it's like it looks um, photorealistic like it looks like they could have actually figured out a way to do it in real life although it might have been CG but uh, I thought it it turns out it's
2: just practical like kinetic sand that they're
1: (laughs) it's like magnets or whatever it would be amazing yeah but what did you think of the opening title sequence? I'll be perfectly
2: honest. Thing. I think, and you know, we're starting off great because I disagree with you on one of the very first things we wow. talk about. I was slightly unimpressed uh, by the, by the, the title sequence, but I feel like I need to go back and maybe watch it again to kind of appreciate it. Because when I first saw it, I went, okay, I'm trying to figure out what they're trying to say. And maybe I was reaching a little uh, too far. Or just, it didn't click in my brain because it was very late. Um, but uh, it uh, maybe I'm just showing my bias here, but I very much wanted there to be a Game of Thrones esque epicness in mm-hmm. scale, and, and you know I don't want them to steal like the zooming over the map and building up these uh, you know paper uh, uh, towers and things. But yeah. Middle Earth is known by the map so well, arguably more than George R R, R. Martin or really any other fantasy series uh based on the landscape right the misty mountains right down the center the shire in the midst that that sort of perpendicular mountain range where mordor is down in the bottom right like i kind of wanted a little bit more out of it but i will i will withhold uh judgment until i can sort of go back and watch it again and maybe try and pick out the deeper meanings
1: that's interesting i think that in terms of deeper meanings i feel like it's just trying to be vibes man you know like that's kind of my thought it's (laughs) It, the the game of thrones opening credit sequences both for game of thrones and house of the dragon were trying to inform you about the world mm-hmm. right they're trying to be like this is what the universe is um that's not what this title sequence is trying to do i think it's just trying to like give you a feeling of mm. what this world is like and and what the universe are trying to create is so it's just it's just vibes okay it's vibes it's a very uh, different need, approach i'll think about it less then. maybe i'll just you know it's that, no just vibes i think that's kind of what i'm suggesting that's okay that's kind of what i'm suggesting um, I'm ready for it. okay so let's talk about, uh, well, I am curious, like, are you a fan of the, the approach of not having opening credits until the second episode? That 100%. I 100%. I love that they just threw us into the deep end with it. Yeah. There is a prologue in the first episode of The Rings of Power, uh, and it's kind of similar in tone <laughs> to the prologue of Lord of the Rings, Fellowship of the Ring with mm-hmm. uh, Cate Blanchett playing Galadriel there. Um, and in this, uh, show it's Morphid Clark, I believe, right? Yes. Morphid Clark.
2: Uh, there is also a, uh, a younger, uh, Galadriel who is played by, uh, oh goodness, I'm going to forget her name. And this is terrible because her father, uh, and I have spoken a few times. (laughs) Um, but, uh, but yes, this, this young Galadriel kind of approaches and you are, you are in, uh, Valinor, you are in sort of the undying lands and we kind of get to see this little perfect piece of. It's not elf heaven because it's a physical place, but like this is their paradise basically.
1: Yeah. Um, So, so this, this opening scene is with, uh, is with Val is in Valinor. basically.
2: Yes, it is in Valinor. And uh, again, the the place
1: with the big sun that (laughs) we see later in the episode, right? Kind of. Yes. And it's funny.
2: You mentioned the sun specifically, because I have notes about this. Um, So in here's a, a fun, obscure Lord of the Rings fact, right? Back In the first age of Middle-earth, and even before then, um, and you see this in the scene um, as the elf walking up the hill, uh, you see this city and then you see two uh, brightly colored trees in the distance. The trees are called Lorelin and Telperion, and they existed before the sun and moon existed. The god in Tolkien's universe didn't create the sun and moon until uh, a little bit later when, as we see a, a few moments later in the prologue, uh, the trees are destroyed by Sauron's master, Morgoth.
1: So in the opening sequence, there's child Galadriel. She's hanging out with her brother. She's trying to make a ship go down a stream. And it's a metaphor for her spirit wanting to be free and rebel against, you know, what society has in store for her. Uh, and it's it's a lovely interaction. Like. Bear McCree did the score for this show, and I I, I think it's quite evocative of Howard Chor's music for uh, the Peter Jackson trilogy, yeah. while still being its own thing, while still having its own themes and and being its own. But it, there are moments where it does like evoke and remind me a lot of Howard Chor's score, uh, and this opening sequence is one of them. But yeah. they have a lo- lovely little interaction, and he kind of lays out one of the themes of this episode and possibly the show about. <laughs> you know, fixing your eyes on the right thing and focusing on the right thing and um, and and understanding, you know, uh, what dynamics are at play so you don't get pulled under, you know, like a ship. Um, and then we get the full backstory for everything that happens during the first age, right? Uh, and this is an older Galadriel uh, that is describing what's going on. And I have to say, Don, I found this to be a little bit puzzling. Um, this whole sequence, uh, like you, you talked about the trees, and th- that was helpful. What you just said, but I was a little bit confused. Like, what does the tree represent? Who is Mor Who is Morgoth? Is Morgoth like Morgoth is basically Sauron's boss, old boss, right? Yeah, yeah. So, so uh, without going
2: so deep into Tolkien's legendarium, this episode becomes four hours. There is a god in Tolkien's universe. Uh, He made some ethereal children of his thought called the Ainur, and they all have magical powers and created the physical world. One of those Ainur rebelled against Dad and said, you know, I'm I'm moving out, I hate you so much, and uh, basically ruined everything for everyone. And that is Morgoth.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's an interesting approach to introduce us to a villain that we don't see really and don't know that much about and then and by the way here's the villain that you knew from before like yeah yeah you know it's I'm like hmm, not not sure I love it from a storytelling perspective because it's like if you're gonna make Morgoth be the big bad like make Morgoth be the big bad and like that's the thing we're fighting against because uh, we don't know what like as an audience who saw Lord of the Rings we don't know what happened to Morgoth necessarily right mm-hmm. Uh we do know what happens to Sauron right. at the end of Lord of the Rings so uh, didn't love it. But anyway, are there any other things from this uh, prologue you want to highlight? And by the way, I do want to mention that the child Galadriel was Amel- uh, Amelie Child-Villiers. Ah, uh, thank Amelie you. Amelie Child-Villiers is the, uh, is the actress who plays her. Anyway, Appreciate uh, it. anything else you want to mention about this prologue, Don Martin?
2: Uh- from a visual standpoint, I thought it was stunning. The, I thought we saw when the, when Galadriel's brother Finrod is walking up the hill, we see cresting over the city. That's a nice, the, the prologue very much felt like, uh, you know, visual eye candy to those of us that have read the Silmarillion, just that explains everything that happens in the first age. So I know that that is, uh, the city of Tyrion upon Tuna, not Tyrion, like Game of Thrones, and not tuna. There's an accent <laughs> over the U. Like there's, there's all these like little Easter egg bits that you know were very much nods to to Silmarillion readers. But yeah, I I found the prologue um, needing a little bit more uh, explanation just to kind of hook people into the story because it it does play you know the events of the first age uh, do play an important role um, in the second age to kind of provide context to. Where's everybody at? You know, why is Galadriel the way she is? Um, visually though, loved uh the the eagles and the fell beasts fighting in midair. Well, I think one of the eagles was on fire and crashed into the ground when we'll we see in that battle scene.
1: I mean, for decades, Don Marshall, people have asked the question, why didn't those hobbits just take an eagle to drop that ring off in the at Mount Doom? Uh the answer is uh, because they would have been freaking lit on fire as we find out in the first episode of Lord of the Rings, the Rings of Power. Oh, right? uh,
2: I wrote 97 pages of fan fiction for nothing.
1: Uh. <laughs> And they actually, just they just showed it in ten frames of the they, show they did they did well, actually, uh, David,
2: I don't even know if you know this. Uh, I got that question so much that I yes. literally just started writing for for hours because in my mind, the Eagle would get tempted by the ring and <laughs> overthrow Sauron and rule Middle Earth as their bird overlord. And everyone's like, mm-hmm. "Wow, that sounds fun. I wonder what that world would look. No, like. So no, no, I-
1: it's because the actual reason, Don Marshall is because uh, Eagles have the tendency to occasionally ignite in flames,. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I cannot thank whoever made that decision to show the eagle on fire. Cannot thank them enough for mm-hmm. making my job for the rest of my life so much easier.
1: But the things we do glean from the prologue are Morgoth and Sauron, uh they killed a lot of elves, basically. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. You see this shot of Galadriel standing with like a helmet or whatever, and it's like, yeah. wow, tons of, and, and like a really impressive mountain of helmets they built, by the way, that's just like, wow, a lot of elves are dead um but on the one hand i it's a little bit maddeningly vague i have to say uh what happens on the other hand no more vague than i would say what happened at the in the prologue for fellowship of the ring you know Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. we forged all these rings one ring to rule them all okay i guess that's how that works you know like and kind of similar vibe here where it's like well okay yeah um morgoth killed a bunch of elves and now galadriel's really pissed i mean throughout the course of that's the episode it, that's it <laughs> throughout the course of the episode she kind of describes how pissed she's like look if you had to name every single one of these elves it would be like longer than your lifetime now i think she's probably exaggerating for uh, effect oh uh, but... <laughs> you know
2: I, I don't know about that we'll come back okay, to that okay, when we get to that sc- scene the but, scale
1: yeah. the scale must be like millions of elves right it must be like millions of elves have been killed so yeah. um yeah uh, so, yeah, it's it's a little bit vague, but we we get the kind of main effect. Yeah, of, you get the idea. Uh, you get We get the idea. What we are going to do now on this podcast is we are going to cover each of the uh, characters, storylines one by one, rather than like jump scene by scene. So we're going to cover everything that happens to Galadriel, everything that happens to Elrond and so on. Um, and it will span the first two episodes. So we're going to assume you've seen the first two episodes of the show. So we start with Galadriel at... Forward wave, the northernmost waste. And this goes to the statement I made earlier, uh, or I might not have made it earlier, but I thought it earlier, which is that <laughs> every 30 seconds when you're watching this show, you're seeing something incredible. You're yeah. seeing like, oh my God, like yeah. I didn't even know that was possible. and And that's what's great about Middle Earth is it's very beautiful, but it's like, it's kind of like Earth, but just a little bit weird and different. Like there's just, these little differences that are like, that's not something that would occur on Earth necessarily. And so she's at this huge mountain that has like a massive waterfall that's just like, whoa this is incredible what i'm looking at and then of course you never see it again which is yeah another thing that happens in the show is like yeah you're watching something it's like oh my gosh that looks like it cost a million dollars and then oh we're oh, we're not we're not going to look at that again it's gone it's gone, it's gone forever gone. forget Me- it it's w- wipe it from your mind we're never seeing it again Me- um, meanwhile
2: here's peter jackson who's filming uh vigo mortensen orlando bloom and john davies just running in a helicopter for like three hours And there's <laughs> there's a there's a very long sequence in the two towers where i'm like all right they're running Oh, it's another shot of them running.
0: Oh, okay, it's a close up. <laughs> Still running.
2: A right.
1: fifth shot. A tenth. Sh- okay, Peter, it, calm it's, down. It's like Peter spent a lot of money on the helicopter that day, and he's going to get the most use of it. <laughs> this is like the opposite of that, which is ah. like they're using the shot once, and it's like we're never using it again. So it's like okay, all right, whatever yeah. you guys know best. Uh, but uh, Galadriel and her team of elf commandos. Don's words, not mine. That's right? what they are, right? <laughs> uh,
2: right. If you if you're yeah. if you're on a team with Galadriel and you're. Uh, Am I allowed to swear on this podcast? Yeah, yeah, I think it's fine. Yeah, if you're a badass elf and you're traveling with Galadriel with, like, swords and armor, you're a commando, right? Yes. You're special ops. Uh,
1: They travel north of the Misty Mountains to try and find Sauron and stumble upon an abandoned fortress in the north of Middle-earth. So uh, they go into this fortress, scary stuff happens, Uh, (laughs) they find an orc, as far as I can tell, right? Or, not not an orc, uh, like an ice troll. Yeah, well, they
2: they do find an orc, but the dark magic that, uh, according to Galadriel in the episode, the dark magic that sauron used uh like melded his body into the wall yes in like turned him to stone it was very cool visually again one of those things we never see again no um I, so, I someone
1: someone spent 30 hours making that thing you mm-hmm. see it for like 10 seconds and then you never see it but it's it's very much like uh it's giving han solo frozen and carbonite bodies, yes basically. yes yeah.
2: same vibe same vibe yeah. Yeah yeah. Um so then they find this this mark of Sauron on on the ground and it's like uh, oh my there's a there's evil here and Sauron was here and we need to keep moving and, and there's this there's this a kind of interesting conversation which is kind of where I thought oh the dialogue in the show is is quite good cuz they I think they got the elves right when they're sort of doing that like high and lofty kind of speech.
1: Mhm mhm. Also Sauron by the way I think the original jigsaw killer I'm just gonna put that out there. <laughs> uh, he leaves a little mark on, you know. He's
0: mm-hmm, he, basically mm-hmm. he,
1: Sauron's like one of the most prolific serial killers of all time. If, is I think what the show is trying to say. He he likes yeah. to kill people, leave a little mark on them. Yeah, little, there was a little artist a you mark. can imagine. Yeah, y- y- go ahead, go ahead.
2: There's a there's a mark on on Galadriel's brother that we see yeah. in the prologue that is the same mark that appears on that on that stone slab Galadriel and,
1: finds. And, and multiple other locations throughout the episode. Um, but you can tell like. Sauron is one of those serial killers that's really into arts and crafts. Like, when he's... um, If you were to see Sauron's basement, he'd have, like, yarn all over the walls and, like, newspaper clippings and collaging and stuff like that. That's kind of how I imagine him. Anyway, so they fight an ice troll. Uh, Pretty cool. Like, she jumps up on the sword and, like, cuts this ice troll in multiple ways. Pretty badass sequence.
2: I'm I'm team sword jump. I I Mm -hmm. really like that sequence. In the same way that, as a 12-year-old, I loved... Legolas sliding down the staircase on the yes. back of a shield and taking out an anuilafond. I just twelve year old me thought that was so cool, and then I see this, I'm
1: like, yeah, all right. If you liked Legolas sliding down the stairs on a shield, you're gonna love Galadriel jumping on a sword and killing the ice troll. So yeah, yeah. Um, But the other elves are so shaken by this encounter, they're like, we're not doing this anymore. And I thought it was a cool like gesture. I didn't know if this was in the books or anything, Don, where they like lay down their swords as a as a thing of like you're on your own right Th- that, uh, that i as far
2: as i'm aware that's not something that tolkien mentions specifically but just in terms of holding a sword to show that you are done fighting throwing down a sword laying it on the ground is usually a sign of surrender or uh, yeah. mutiny or pacifism so i really liked that moment i thought that was very very well done
1: now at that point we cut kind of cut away and go to another uh, scene but mm-hmm. my uh, interpretation of that was, oh, I guess Galadriel's uh, just going off on her own then doing her own thing. But nope. Uh, <laughs> I think she decided I can't do this on my own. And so she decided to go home, right?
2: She did. She did.
1: Yeah. So she goes home so she gets Uh,
2: to uh she gets to we we because we jump around we get to we see her again in one of elrond's uh scenes and elrond is basically just this wonderful uh amazing guy who is at this point sort of a a politician uh in in his life and um there's this sort of like understanding that Elrond and Galadriel are friends because we, we again see Galadriel when Elrond uh, approaches her and they, they do this little like face touch thing. They speak Elvish. Uh, one of my friends translated uh, everything that they say. It's wonderful. Um, and they have a conversation about um, traveling to the Undying Lands um, and, and Elrond, who has never been to the Undying Lands, he was, he was born in, uh, in Middle-earth is like is it is it wonderful is it beautiful i have heard things about this and and galadriel um galadriel is basically sort of recounting what she felt in the prologue in a little bit more profound way we get some really cool dialogue there as well
1: yeah yeah uh so let's talk a little bit about the whole elrond galadriel interactions before we go back to galadriel on yeah. her own in a ship again um we are in Linden for these scenes with Elrond, which mm-hmm. is the Elven capital of the Second Age. Uh, Gilgalad isn't the Elven king at this time.
2: It might also be Gilgallad, depending mm-hmm. on who you ask. It's, I, uh, it's a whole thing. Tolkien pronunciations are a wild community.
1: I will say, watching this was very confusing uh, because it's like they're in Middle Earth. Like in the prologue, there's this m- massive deal made out of the fact that. The elves traveled from their land to Middle Earth. Yes, but now we're still in Middle Earth, and this is—we are now told this is the Elven capital. Mm-hmm. So, was the Elven capital always in Middle Earth, or did they establish it during the Second Age in Middle Earth? Like it, it yeah. was
2: established in the Second Age. There were back in the First Age, there were oh, God, off the top of my head, at least three or four different like realms not necessarily kingdoms you know there's a a giant forest called called doriath and there's a, a couple of others um with with an elf named kirdan over uh on in the uh on the west hand side of middle earth and there are a couple of others but Lindon, for all intents and purposes and watching the show is sort of like the bastion of elven uh culture and peacefulness um because a lot of the uh places that were in the first stage because of that war that we saw in the prologue are are no longer there. So Lindon has kind of remained firm.
1: Mm -hmm. And they are theoretically going to transcend and go back to Valinor, right? Which is elf, heaven basically right <laughs> right
2: so at this point in the story it's not necessarily elf heaven because they're not dead they are still very much alive right. they're still on the same you
1: know the physical it's like world. heaven on earth you know pretty much pretty Ooh, much yeah valinor is a place on earth basically right or in yes. middle earth it's actually <laughs> not a middle earth if I recall correctly, right? It's like, it's it's its own <laughs> continent, uh,
2: just very 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 far uh, west of Middle Earth. Yes,
1: but I guess the idea is it's like Elven, par- the Elven equivalent of paradise, or yes, you know, and yes. it certainly represents the idea of heaven metaphorically. Right? Oh, hundred percent, hundred percent. Um, so but Valinor was that place in the prologue with the dying tree and everything? Is that right? Or like that
2: is correct? Yeah. yeah
1: so th- that was also confusing. Is that like we saw this place like kind of be wrecked get wrecked Mm -hmm. in in the opening (laughs) scene and then the next time it's referred to it's like oh that place is awesome now and it's like okay that's weird it's just a weird storytelling thing that they didn't like show it or you know like
2: i can maybe provide a little bit of context yeah sure sure. so there is uh there is valinor also called (laughs) the undying lands which Uh is where that first scene in the prologue happens with galadriel and we you know we see the trees we see everything get dark and then there's an elf named Feanor, who in the First Age, we'll get to Feanor in a minute when we get to Elrond stuff, because there's a brief mention of him, and I, I very much like that. Yeah. Feanor makes these, these beautiful jewels called the Silmarils. Morgoth kills the trees, steals the Silmarils, and runs away from Valinor. <laughs> he is no longer in the Undying Lands. He's like, I'm not safe here, I'm out. Goes to Middle-earth, pieces out, just starts ruling over there, finds his own kingdom. The elves... <laughs> follow him a, a lot mm-hmm. of the elves follow him um to middle earth and that is the war that we see
1: yeah yeah um but i, I would say you know that helps a little bit but from a show perspective it's just a little bit unclear yeah yeah what, which is common, why i was you know? kind of like a little yeah.
2: iffy on the on the prologue i was like
1: mm, he could have yeah, done could have done a little bit more there you know yeah. like we're willing to we're willing to go pretty far with you show you know just yeah. take us the rest of the way take us yeah. the rest of the way so uh a question for you, Don Marshall, about Shoot. the portrayal of elves in this show. I was watching the first uh, couple episodes with a friend of mine, mm-hmm. and she was quite distraught at the depiction of elves because she thinks elves are supposed to be like fairly unemotional, like uh, Vulcans in Star Trek and such. Mm-hmm. Um, and Galadriel is not that at all. She kind of very much is a human, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, very human, relatable emotions. I guess I'm curious if you had an opinion on the depiction of elves in the lord of the rings the rings of power
2: yeah so i I actually like the the way they're portraying uh the elves they they did sort of lean towards a little bit more of a human uh style at least in terms of emotions and a little bit in the dialogue um but i don't think that's a bad thing elves at least in in tolkien's grand mythos are very calm very serene but there are a few gladriel being one of them as we see in fellowship of the ring the elf feanor that i just mentioned there are a couple of others in other first age stories that are prone to lash out right as soon as that temper bubbles up to the top and spills over all of a sudden they're making terrible decisions and they are filled with this wrath and they just go start either wrecking shop or hurting the people around them
1: hmm uh so they are not incapable of emotion or anything like that, right? uh, No, they yeah. can 100%
2: yeah. show emotion, and often when they do, terrible things happen.
1: Right, and we saw Cape Blanchett's character get really angry during, you know, the Lord of the Rings as well, so, <laughs> uh, or Fellowship of the Ring, I should say.
2: Yeah, it's the temptation.
1: So Gil tells Galadriel and the rest of her elf commandos, she's going home to Valinor. Uh, Galadriel doesn't like this, and there's a lot of tension around this, um, and, because Galadriel wants to go out and track down sauron right mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. like you're going home to valinor you're gonna go sing the peaceful elf songs for the rest of the time <laughs> um and uh elrond and galadriel kind of talk a little bit about their past and uh there's this kind of a uh, scene where it's gilgalad that's basically saying like hey thanks thanks to everyone for all of your hard work mm-hmm. you know Mm-hmm. Um, you're getting the company waffle party this year or whatever it is. Right. And, is Severance
2: uh, reference. Yes, it is. <laughs> well, I'm only on episode four. No spoilers. Okay, please, all right. All right. Hang on. Um, waffle parties.
1: But, don't, don't Google that. So, um, <coughs> okay. Anyway, uh, there's this moment where kind of Galadriel needs to, uh, bow her head mm-hmm. to like acknowledge that she's accepted her fate and it's very difficult for her, but she does it. Um, and uh, and that's kind of uh, what goes on before uh, Galadriel gets on the boat, right? So anything, any thoughts on this scene? Any details on this sequence, Don, that you want to mention? Yeah.
2: Yeah the the whole Galadriel uh in Lindon interaction was really interesting. I really liked the dynamic she had with uh Gilgalad because there there is very much that tension there because the elves are very, you know, they're very proud, they're very sure of themselves and you know a a confident king like Gilgalad is going to try and be, you know, that statesman that that uh, can assure everybody and then here is this little, you know, thorn in his side in Galadriel. And uh, someone said to me that it felt like it was out of character. Why would gil uh send some of his best fighters home if he knows that the the evil still lurks, or even if he thinks the evil still lurks? In my mind, he's smart enough to know that, like, I I can lose seven or eight warriors if it means I can get rid of her, and I want mm. to get rid of her. So I thought that was really – that that was a, a kind of like a statesman uh, sort of way to handle it.
1: Interesting. Well, and then later he does explain – that sometimes uh, something that's trying to blow out the fire can fan the flames, right? Like, yes, so, some, sometimes the cure can be worse than the disease. Mm-hmm. Right? Sometimes mm-hmm. like trying to get rid of something in doing so you may end up making the thing worse. Right. Um, that's his philosophy. Is like, if we just don't do anything about Sauron, it's all going to be fine. <laughs> right? and it's what they
2: did. You know what? That is so quintessentially elven because it's what they did during the First Age in their battle against Morgoth, Sauron's master. They're like, all right, cool. We know Morgoth is here, but we're going to establish these kingdoms. We're going to fight every once in a while, but like, let's just leave him do his thing. It couldn't possibly get any worse.
1: There may or may not be politicians in our world, Don, <laughs> that are like... Hey, if we just yeah. don't look at the COVID numbers, you know, uh, maybe it's not actually not that bad, Woo. you know. Yeah. <laughs> um certainly well, no one has ever suggested such a thing.
2: Oh no, uh, in
1: our world, anyway, ridiculous.
2: <laughs> so,
1: <laughs> so, uh, and that's basically, I think, uh, Galadriel. We should also mention Galadriel and Elrond had that interaction in kind of that forest with the yes, uh, wooden the, the, statues, where yeah, kind the, of. The, yeah go ahead
2: yeah no so that is what i assume to be a a kind of memorial because we do see one that very much looks like her brother um Mm. we see one we actually see there's there's two really cool ones that i love one of the statues has a dog standing in front of the elf and i think that is i think that is a nod to a talking dog that existed in the first age named huan uh huan went on this quest with this elfin human named baron and luthien uh who are ancestors both of aragorn and arwin thousands and thousands of years down the line um but seeing a dog standing in front of a mouth that was a nice little easter egg for for someone like me
1: yeah uh and just the wooden statues look like they were actually carved out of wood like maybe they oh, were CG, gorgeous. but they, they looked amazing i was like this is again we're probably never going to visit this set again. you know? And it's like, okay, someone spent a hundred hours making that wooden carving or those wooden carvings. And uh, it looks amazing, but, but they kind of have a confrontation about like, Hey, do you want like how many more people need to die Galadriel mm-hmm. for you to, uh, for you to feel like your quixotic quest has been fulfilled.
2: Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Cause I think it was something that, that uh, Elrond said that like um, the evil is gone from this land and galadriel responds uh then why is it not gone from in here and points to herself because she mm. still sort of feels that that evil and elrond being both the friend and kind of the politician which I, david i don't know if you noticed this um elrond is writing uh Gilgalad's speech when we first see him and uh and and uh we and see he's, mouthing where, he's, he's mouthing it he's mouthing the just, words as yes. he's putting the the crown on galadriel's head and i just went yeah now that that fits perfectly but we'll I get more good, into that i one.
1: love a good speech mouthing scene you know I, i'm not <laughs> even joking i love it i love it when that happens in a, in a movie or a tv show so yeah um but anyway uh they, they have differing approaches on like what they think that you know galadriel should do elrond's like hey you gotta let go of this thing it's only when you let go that you can heal and um galadriel's like no i gotta go out there and face this thing you know yeah. and uh so galadriel is heading back on the ship to valinor i mean we all know here's the thing don we all know she's not going to go to valinor okay like uh, yeah
2: we, we've seen the trailers <laughs> we know what's happening we,
1: we, if you've okay. seen the trailer or literally any promotional imagery for the show you know <laughs> that she's not going to go to valinor i will say that this the scenes of the boat heading to valinor are so beautiful like the the little birds flying overhead it's just like hmm. oh my gosh it's just it's uh it, it it made me like emotional to see it because i'm like i've i know it's cg it's all CG but it's like some of the best cg i feel i've seen oh sam um, i feel the exact same way gorgeous absolutely yeah. gorgeous scene. it's so it's so good um so anyway they are about to travel to the undying lands um and then
2: there's uh, this really great moment of of uh uh, they're, when they're sort of de de-armor, or de armoring, yeah. I don't know what the yes, word is, yes. taking off the armor, and Galadriel is holding on to the dagger, yes. and she, she doesn't quite let it go. But you know, I, they probably don't want Galadriel of all people bringing weapons
1: into the Undying Lands. <laughs> um, so she strictly does, like, no weapons policy. Yeah, in, yeah. In Valinor. I, I, in, that in is that is the same dagger that she got from her her brother's yes. corpse uh, in the prologue, right? Mm-hmm, so, mm-hmm. Yeah. And
2: uh, it, I love that sort of symbolism of like, you can't take it with you. You can't take it with you. You can't, mm-hmm. take, it you. You can't and, take it with you. Yeah. And then we get the 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 chanting. And of course, they all know the words and Galadriel's not singing and the birds. I, I thought that was one of the most beautiful sequences. Bear McCreary did an absolutely amazing job on that part. I agree. Absolutely. Amazing. I agree.
1: Yeah. And we see this meteor come in. It's like, <sighs> no idea Ooh. what's going on here. Uh, but I guess for her... The meteor is kind of a signal to like, hey, something's wrong. Like you shouldn't go on this trip. Yeah, 100%. So she dives down and, you know, and also when the meteor comes in and we'll talk a little bit about how other people react to the meteor later on, of course. Mm But um, you do get a shot of the Ents. Oh, the
2: ents, right, oh, and the little entings the little baby ents, just kind mm. of leaning in close to i love that and again yeah. we're probably never gonna see it again yes. but there's yes.
1: there's that cg that's cool. shot that's uh two towers right is when we saw yes. ents in the movies yes. right so yeah um and uh then she dives into the water and it's mm-hmm. very like this <laughs> a fairly protracted sequence of uh her a senior commando elf being like come on galadriel and she's like i can't do it i can't and then she jumps into the water and i guess swims for a long long time is
2: yeah so so just for anyone that was like there's no way elves could swim that way elves are superhuman, right they are next <laughs> level they are better than us in pretty much every way mm-hmm. um but i had I had the the moment when I was watching this in the theater the first time when she jumps in and I'm like, well, where's the boat? She's not going to get rescued right away, and she just <laughs> starts swimming. I'm like, okay, I guess she's swimming. You go, girl.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So she swims. Uh, you know, I was watching with my wife. She's like, how does she know where to swim to? I was just like, clearly, just in the opposite direction of what yeah. the ship was going in. You know, yeah. so
2: good for her though. <laughs>
1: So she's at sea and then she finds a uh, raft of mm-hmm. people um, and kind of is led on board and they're humans that are on board. Yes, so she like they covers are, they her are ears humans. because as we'll get into later, and I want to talk more in depth about this later, like elves and humans have a very fraught relationship and I want to mm-hmm. explore that with you a little bit later, yeah. but yeah, yeah, let's yeah. just finish off this Galadriel stuff first. There is a worm, mm-hmm. something called a worm. Mm-hmm. Um, and is this a well known Middle Earth monster, Don Marshall? No,
2: no. There are there are references to sea monsters both in the maps of Middle Earth and uh at the Council of Elrond, I think, in the book. Tolkien explains or rather I should say Gandalf explains um that no you can't just drop the one ring in the ocean because there are sea monsters and plate tectonics uh exist and you know it it will the lands will move and change and we're just delaying the inevitable so we can't drop it in the ocean um so yes this is this is not just something that uh they decided to have there are lots of big scary monsters in middle earth
1: I think what's fascinating about this show is it very much is an exercise in some ways of like offhanded references to things and trying to make an entire show with a compelling story out of it, right? Mm-hmm. Because this is largely based on the appendices as we discussed in our, right. uh, pre, uh, preview episode. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's fascinating that like Gandalf makes an offhanded reference to sea creatures. And now, you know, a visual artist spends a hundred hours perfecting this worm that we see <laughs> in this episode, you know, yep. Yep. uh, it's, it's basically a, Streaming version of the butterfly effect, I think. <laughs> pretty much, um, pretty much. So uh, things turn around for Gladrill real quick because mm-hmm. this woman's like, "No, c- let her ha- come on board. Give her some of our precious water and rations to, like, you know, get, like kick her yeah. off the ship as quickly as possible." Yeah. Um.
2: Only two moments later, be kicked off the ship by that same woman who let her on. Yeah, 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 when yeah. the worm attacks.
1: Yeah, yeah, wow. yeah. So, uh, she's uh. uh I guess they really don't like elves on the ship. You know, it's kind of my takeaway from it. Mm -hmm. So she kind of jumps off and then the worm annihilates the raft that she was on. And then like, uh, this dude, Halbrand, uh, comes to her aid and like, lets her climb aboard the ship, Mm -hmm. uh, the, the the raft. And they, they have a few interactions. Um, there is, a big storm that happens there's mm-hmm. a scene where Halbrand reaches into the water and I think he's going to try to grab a fish or something but he's actually just getting some water to slick back his hair cuz these are two of the best looking people on the show, Don. So it was, it was the they,
2: most unnecessary scene, but I know so many people loved it because that, that had the same energy as Aragorn opening the double doors in the two towers. You didn't need to do it that way, but mm. why not just look pretty while you do
1: it, right? Why not? Why not? <laughs> they talk about the battles they've seen, and uh, she makes the point that she's like really pursuing this Sauron guy who's killed so many people that she's known, and how dare you question my intentions, et cetera, et cetera. Um and I guess I'm curious if you have any other thoughts. I thought this was a little bit this whole scene sequence is a little bit confusing to me because Yeah. I'm wasn't like, why crazy. why is he helping like why is he helping her? Like wouldn't he have formed a relationship with all these other people that uh, maybe they they all just died, right? Maybe yeah. when the the worm hit it they all died and he's like, "Well, I'm going to take on the last person who's" but they don't they don't show them all dying, so we just assume that they died, right? No, they, there's
2: yeah. there's very much, I think, the understanding that they get uh, eaten because there's a quick scene, I don't know if you caught it, where mm. Halbrand, this human, uh, basically unties part of one raft and uh, lets the other part of the raft go that everybody else is on. And that's kind of how mm. he makes his escape and Galadriel's in the water. But I'll be honest, um, wasn't crazy about... Uh, these scenes it definitely felt like it was giving Galadriel sort of the motivation because Halbrand is a man from the south and he's seen orcs, so Galadriel's like, I've been traveling in the wrong direction this whole time. Oh no! And uh, so I think eventually right. they they will wind up in the south somewhere. Halbrand's
1: Brand, Hal kind of like basically like an exposition machine, pretty yeah, much. Like yeah. It, it's, it, it kind it, of felt like a, that plot, a plot device. Yeah, were, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, it's like, you know, what what is his motivation for taking her on board again? Uh, I I No idea. You know. Yeah. Um. It's it's because Don they're both the most like some of the most attractive people on the show. So I yeah, think that's beautiful. Why people have to stick together. They have to stick together. They have to stick together. So. <laughs> uh, and then there is a mysterious figure on a ship that happens upon the raft. Oh no! Who could it be? Who could it be? Unclear. Uh, <laughs> sure, sure, sure. It is. <laughs> Fair enough. fair enough. See, this is our first test of the non-spoiler policy, Don, and I appreciate it. I'm trying. Don's self-restraint is massive there. Okay. (laughs) So that is the Galadriel storyline this episode. Overall, uh, I think they do a pretty good job of introducing her as a character. I think that a lot of the characters in the show are... Uh, well-known archetypes i would say right
2: yeah yeah
1: and uh i don't necessarily mind that because it's Mm -mm. like hey if you can deliver a good well-executed well-known archetype that's fine but you know galadriel is like um, a person who is trying to break out of the constraints that society has set for her right um and follow her own path in the pursuit of doing what she believes is right now i think in the notes Don, you made the comment that like a lot of this Galadriel stuff is actually made up. Is that correct? Like-
2: yeah. So it, the showrunners did something very interesting that I I actually enjoy because I, I love when we see characters that are given agency. Um, Tolkien's books don't really talk a lot about Galadriel in her time in the Second Age. And she's hanging out in various elven forest capitals and places and kingdoms, uh, giving advice, helping others. Uh, and then um, – she uh, goes to Lothlorien like we see in, in uh, the, the Fellowship of the Ring. And um, that's about it as far as the books go. So I'm very much – I think from a marketing perspective, it makes sense because for those that have maybe only seen the movies, they're like, hey, you want to see this young Galadriel origin story? And so the fact that they are giving her something to do i I think is a is a good idea from both a marketing perspective and I quite like the story that is being told about her so far.
1: yeah, I think that um one of the great things about prequels the the thing a prequel can do really well is make the other things that you see later on in the story more meaningful right um, so i'll I'll give two examples that I often go to that. I think do a good job of this. I would say Star uh, Rogue One A Star Wars story. Oh, R- relatively good prequel. Relatively good prequel because Love it's it. like, oh wow, like there's a lot of meaning now in, um, in that one line of text. in that one line of text, right? Yeah. About like how they got the plans for the, for the Death Star, right? Like, mm-hmm. and uh, and that's cool. Uh, another prequel, I would say, Better Call Saul. Uh, mm. the character Saul Goodman. Now you have a completely different lens with which to view that character if you ever watch Breaking Bad again, and so. The question is, uh, when you rewatch after we finish watching the Lord of the Rings, the Rings of Power, when we rewatch Fellowship of the Ring, the movies, um, a is it all going to make sense? Like, oh yes, it makes sense that Galadriel like killed a bunch of orcs, you know, before we saw her as Cate Blanchett in the Mm -hmm. first movie, and or does it make Fellowship of the Ring and that kind of stuff more interesting? right Mm. is is it more interesting because we now have the knowledge from the lord of the rings the rings of power that is the question that's going to animate at least part of the show in my opinion and and how how well it does right yeah yeah yeah, yeah. um but uh but yeah i think it's really smart from from a marketing perspective as well uh i think more for because it's like hey remember the thing the character you saw from the other thing it's it's that it's that one yeah um and uh, also, I think Morphe Clark is doing a, a pretty good job uh, yeah, in the role. She's so.
2: she's phenomenal. I've I've had the pleasure of meeting her twice now, and she is just the kindest person in real life. And I'm so glad that her acting talent is being portrayed on screen because yeah, she. I don't think she tries to be Kate Blanchett. Um, she is very much her own uh person in Galadriel, and I love what she's bringing to the screen.
1: A lot is demanded of her because, first of all, I think by screen time in these first two episodes, she gets the most. Is kind yeah, of my. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, it might you know yeah i
2: think she's I'm she's not... probably got the the most focus on these two episodes i mean there's a reason we spent almost a half hour talking right. about
1: her the, the episode opens with her as a character yeah. you know like it's and i think it closes with no no it doesn't
2: uh anyway. it closes i think with her in the water oh is no, that uh, i think it's meteor man actually i think it's Meteor. Yeah,
1: man. yeah 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 in the yeah yeah but but anyway um but it opens with her it spends a lot of time with her um and the camera spends a lot of time really close up to her face like it does doesn't it
2: yeah that like, was one of my nitpicks i was like oh that's a li- yeah <laughs> it was like, hello, like really close yeah hello everybody how you do it how yeah. you do it yeah um there we're, we're gonna talk about that when we get to Casa doom as well i i had i have a couple of thoughts about the amount of close-ups on the the dwarves was there's so many yes there's yes. so many
1: um okay Let's talk about the Elrond stuff now as well. Why don't we get into the Elrond stuff? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Which is going to lead into the um, Durin stuff. Yeah. So uh, Gilgalad says, I've got a mission for you. You Mm -hmm. know, Uh, and this, when I'm watching this, I'm thinking, oh, they're going to make the Rings of Power. No. Turns out they are going to make the thing that is going to make the rings of power. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. That the when Force. I first
2: heard that right. line, I was like, "Oh, they're going for a slow burn," because we we don't see uh, well, we do see Celebrimbor introduced, but he doesn't have any lines in the first episode. So this mission that that uh, that Elrond has kind of been given, I was like, "Oh, we might not even see the physical rings this season." We might right. just see the forge. We might
1: not season. see the titular rings of power this season. <laughs> I mean, uh it's it's possible we might not even see the forge being con- finished this season. That is know? true.
2: That is a good point. That so is a good point.
1: We have seasons off from the rings from the titular rings of power. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. anyway, uh they uh, they meet Cal Brimbor. There's a scene where um she uh or I should say um Celebrimbor kind of, he's the guy who's like making the forge, right? With the schematics yes, and stuff, yes. right? And there's this uh, sword or handle or something like tool, ha- right?
2: Yes, this is the hammer of Theanor. Um
1: What is the hammer of Feanor, Don Marshall?
2: Right. So as I was mentioning about 20 minutes ago, giving you all of the backstory of the first stage between Feanor and Morgoth and the Silmarils, The Hammer of Feanor is the hammer that Feanor, one of, if not the most powerful elves ever, um, used to create what are known as the Silmarils, the sacred jewels. There were three of them that the elves um, revered above all else because they contained within them the light of those two trees that we see in the very beginning, Laurelin and Telperion. Um, And there's a couple of very interesting tidbits about how Feanor may have been inspired by uh, Galadriel's hair. And so that's why Gimli's gift is so important in Fellowship of the Ring. And, you know, whether or not uh, Feanor is a good person is a very much entirely up to the reader's sort of standpoint because he made a lot of mistakes. But Feanor is the creator of the Silmarils and more or less the catalyst for
1: everything that happens in the First Age. Got it. So that's uh, who wh- wh- the person who's that's, cool yes. is uh, being described by Celebrimbor yeah. in that scene between him and Elrond. Uh, so then Elrond is like, hey, I've got, a, I got an idea. I, I got a friend who can uh, help us out with this uh, job. So then mm-hmm. they go to uh, visit uh, Durin, right? Um, mm-hmm. Durin the Fourth. At Casa Doom, right? Casa Doom, yes. Now, before we get to Doom, uh any other things about the Elrond storyline we want to mention? Um, one of the things you mentioned in the notes that I want to make sure we call out is mm. there's a moment with the Elrond storyline where uh, Elrond says, like, Galadriel has passed beyond my sight.
2: Ah, yes, yes. This was a does- lovely callback uh, that we got. Uh, kind of to the uh, Return of the King movie. There's a scene in Return of the King uh, when the Battle of Pelennor Field is over and Gandalf is standing in a tower in Minas Tirith and he goes, Frodo has passed beyond my sight. And that confused a lot of people that maybe th- didn't read the books or didn't understand, but it's it's not necessarily a metaphorical understanding, but there is, there is now a, a point in time where Gandalf can't even guess what's going to happen next with him because of the way things have gone down right the aragorn has shown up the army of the dead uh they've won gandalf can no longer perceive the actions that might happen and so in that same way elrond has kind of said galadriel has passed beyond my site so what what, what
1: triggers gone. someone passing beyond uh someone's uh, site like just <laughs> th- things become so unpredictable like too many factors become unpredictable right basically? yeah
2: it's it also can potentially be like a a finality um but again uh, Some people read into it as like, oh, well, maybe uh, Gandalf has a sort of sixth sense about it. Maybe Elrond has a sixth sense about it. Tolkien plays pretty fast and loose with his sort of magic systems in a way that like uh, Robert Jordan in the Wheel of Time uh, doesn't, uh, where there's like a hard set rules for this magic. Tolkien is... You know, sometimes they have nature magic. The elves. Sometimes the wizards can create fireballs, and sometimes, you know, they they can't do anything because they're uh trapped on top of a tower. Uh, and it kind of the, the, don't think too hard about it is kind of my answer. But it was a very nice callback uh, yeah. to sort of or say,
1: or like, call call forward Don Marshall. Perhaps, uh, you you know, know, I guess it would be if Elvron <laughs> said it first. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so they go to Casa Doom now. Casa Doom is actually depicted in the fellowship of the ring trilogy, right?
2: Yes. Yes, it is. Uh,
1: it's the place that Gimli's like, you guys got to see cause of Dune. This place is amazing. Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then they go there and it's like a complete waste. If I recall yes. correctly. Right. Yes, it is. Uh, which is sad. And what, why, what has happened between, I, I think it's because it's from the original movies. We can explain like something, some calamity clearly occurred, right, 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 right. right? So,
2: so a calamity occurs at some point in, um, in moria and there are several attempts to in the third age resettle it and Mm -hmm. so the the uh settlement the most recent one is actually uh if you've watched the hobbit movie can can we spoil the hobbit movies as well Okay. the long white haired dwarf named balin that we see in the hobbit movies takes a couple of dwarves with him to try and see hey moria's been abandoned for a very long time Maybe the orcs are gone. Maybe we can resettle it. And in the books, they do. And in the movies, it's kind of hinted at. But this this settlement goes awry because there are, are still orcs there in the Third Age. And Balin is actually the one in the tomb uh, that we see in the Fellowship of the Ring when they're in that when they're in that cha- it's called the Chamber of Mazarbul. But uh, mm. yeah, that's that's who that is.
1: Yeah, but it's just a nice touch. I think that uh Gimli wasn't full of crap you know no, like he no 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 it was <laughs> it actually beautiful. was it, w- it was beautiful and and that's the thing is like Gimli sets it up in such a big way that they had to really deliver on it in this episode of like this place is spectacular and I think they do a pretty good job of it. Oh, like, oh you can visuals. understand what visually like when someone looks at it they're like wow this is truly a marvel of engineering like the freaking mirror that with Project the yeah. on So they can grow plants is like
2: I love that. Incredible. I loved that so much. <laughs> that was such a cool again, one of those million dollar CGI shots that we may never I hope yeah. we see way more of it, but we yeah. may never see it again. I, sus- and
1: I, I suspect we'll see a little bit more of Cause of Doom. I really hope so. I really, the Doom, so. You know, I really right.
2: like the Dwarven culture. And I loved uh in in the promotional stuff leading up to this, uh JD and Patrick, the showrunners, really leaned in heavy, like we wanted to pay respect to the Dwarven culture because there is there's a lot there. There's a lot there that we don't get to see
1: in in the original yeah. trilogy. Uh female dwarves. Yeah, dwarf, right? Oh. Like there's no female dwarves in Deez-a. the uh, you know, yeah. Um but we meet uh, uh dwarves of all different uh shapes and sizes and colors and genders mm-hmm. in this episode and yeah. uh and it's wonderful. It's nice it's just nice and it feels like well thought out, you know. It doesn't oh, it feel does. It does. doesn't feel just like fan y in my opinion. Mm-mm. So Mm-mm. anyway, okay. So they have a big uh
0: rock confrontation breaking at
1: the well i was gonna say even before that point they oh, have right. this uh at the at the front door mm-hmm. where like elrond is trying to negotiate his way into the front door and uh he's unable to get in because uh durin refuses his request yep and so they have this big rock breaking ceremony he challenges him to the rock breaking. now what i thought was hilarious about this was just that elrond and Celebrimbor have traveled god knows how long <laughs>
2: Uh, It's, it's, um, it actually, it's not terribly far. So, uh, so Celebrimbor, by the way, Charles Edwards in that scene sold me as Celebrimbor. I was, Mm -hmm. I was not, uh, as sold on him when I saw the promotional images, but his, his screen time completely sold me on him. I, I think he did a great job. I think he owned it. Um, but so uh, Celebrimbor, uh, his sort of area that he rules over is a place called Oregion and Oregion is actually just. West of the Misty Mountains in the Mines of Moria, so it probably was closer to khazad Dûm than Rivendell is. So it, it probably sure. wouldn't have taken them too long.
1: But it's like it's like a day's hike, Don. Okay, <laughs> you ever you ever hiked eight hours? Imagine if you hiked eight hours and you're like, oh, actually, you can't see the waterfall that you came to <laughs> the hike.
2: And so, and that's when uh, when Elrond uh invokes it's the right of Sigin Tarog, which mm-hmm. here's another fun obscure Lord of the Rings fact. Uh Sigen tarag is uh what's known as Neo Kuzdul, which we don't know a lot about the Dwarven language, so people have just sort of created their own conlang, their own constructed languages out of it. And so um Sigen tarag is uh the Dwarvish word for long beards. So he is invoking the right of the long beards. Mm, cool.
1: Cool. So, anyway, I just think Celebrimbor, is, he's like, okay, I, I came all this way, and now I'm just going to turn around? Um, yeah, no. <laughs> kind kind no. of a bummer for him. All right, Elrond goes, they go on a, a rock-breaking thing, uh, and the idea is that whoever loses the rock-breaking contest is banished from the Dwarven Lands forever, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so Elrond loses, he like gives up at the end of the thing, and then Durin is going to escort him out, uh, and they have a very tense confrontation on the lift
2: i love which, that scene i think that was really really well written
1: i really liked it a lot because i i think that the sense is that uh elrond hasn't seen durin in decades it sounds like mm-hmm, right mm-hmm. i believe though, he says as, 20, i
2: believe he says 20 years
1: even though as you said don it's not that far away it's far <laughs> enough away that it's like a challenge to get there okay mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh how long do dwarves live do dwarves live like human lifespans basically so
2: a little more than uh human lifespans if i'm remembering correctly it's anywhere between like 200 to 300 ish years however and this is especially important for Dorin, the line of Dorin is an important one for the dwarves the dwarves were uh created by one of the lesser gods that i mentioned called the aynor uh His name was Aule. And you may actually hear a few exclamations of Aule's beard. Aule is the creator of the dwarves. And they invoke his name. And it's like saying, oh, Jesus Christ to us. That's kind of the equivalent. but when Aule created the dwarves, he created one of the dwarves named Dorin, and Dorin basically has this line of uh, descendants, and they live, and they're all basically called Dorin. There's Dorin the second and Dorin the third, whom we see a little bit later, and this is Dorin the fourth. and They can live, I think one of them lives for like 700 years. I need to look Got up it. the ages of all of them, but yeah, they can live a decent time.
1: That said, still way less than elves, which live thousands of years, basically. Yeah,
2: right? El- Elrond is close to, I think, 6,000-ish years, maybe closer to three or 4,000 years old at this point.
1: So you really get a sense of, hey, there's a power differential between us. Mm-hmm. You, know, you live potentially 10x longer than I do. And what is a very short period of time for you is actually a massive period of time for me. And I really felt it uh don you know watching this scene especially because of the events of the last few years uh the pandemic and i think many people feel like they've lost a lot of time off of their lives 100 percent, yeah and and the idea of like encountering someone who like might not feel the same way or like is in a different place than you and like um the bitterness and the resentment that can result from that um you know uh, it, it it all kind of felt very real to me and and that's kind of the best of what I think fantasy can be is using this extremely unlikely to happen in the real world scenario, which is like an elf arguing with a dwarf to kind of remind you about, um, in this case, you know, our own mortality and, and yeah. our own relationships with our friends, you know? Yeah. And, and um,
2: seeing Elrond for Doran, especially, is, is a reminder of his own mortality, right? I think he's, I, I think I have the quote here. You missed my wedding, the birth of my children. 20 years may be the blink of an eye to an elf, but I've lived a life in that time, a life you missed. Yeah. And that, Owen Arthur, just the delivery of that line for me just hit me right, like right at the core. Cause yeah, that was because you're right. It does kind of remind you of the pandemic. We've we've missed a lot of of life. We've lost loved ones sometimes. And it just yeah. like that one hit real hard
1: for me. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, powerful scene. Mm-hmm. So Elrond is very gracious, apologizes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he's he's the bigger man in the scenario, you know, even though literally and figuratively, I guess. <laughs> um and uh, he's like, okay, fine. You can come in and you can take a look around, but then like, you got to go. And then, of course, um, they meet Durin's wife, and she's like, you got to stay for dinner. And they have a, a, a lovely interaction talking about, like, there's a tree that Elrond gave to him that he planted. And it's like, oh, what, what a lovely idea that, like, he gave him this tree and it can still grow even in this cave. And, uh, and that there's a lot of love in this household, you know? So, and, and you uh, can tell. You can tell yeah it's it's all just lovely stuff, lovely stuff. Any things you want to call out from this entire sequence a hundred percent uh
2: one, I need to give a shout out to uh Sofia Namvita, who does an amazing job as Disa. um I think just the the way that she presents herself in contrast to Doran. I love their dynamic, I love their relationship. I want those two to have more screen time and potentially several spin offs, but that's neither here nor there <laughs> um A couple of things I just wanted to point out, little fun, obscure details. Um, One of Doran's kids is named Gamli, G-A-M-L-I, kind of close to Gimli, but I quite like Mm. it. Um, Disa is introducing the idea of something called resonating, which is, I don't think, something Tolkien never talked about. but Such a cool idea,
1: like echolocating, basically, for for dwarves, right? I, I think
2: that that is going to be when we see it right cuz that's that's just the 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 teaser it's like oh you want to see the dwarven chorus we got you i can't wait to see that scene i'm i'm so excited
1: well it's also um, like now i understand why the dwarves sang so often in the hobbit prequels it's yeah. cuz uh they the the sound and the music is actually serves a purpose for their uh their jobs and stuff yeah
2: yeah 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 it's it's a it's a nice little uh nice little nod to to a lot of the dwarven culture um i did also really like the idea that we see elrond uh sort of shed his politician persona right when he's talking to gil gallad when he's talking to uh Celebrimbor, um when he's you know trying to present himself as this stately man man of the people man of peace pacifist politician but at the dinner scene we see you know He's sort of dropping that when he when he gives the apology. It's like, congratulations, I'm so happy you got married. I'm sorry that this, I'm sorry that I missed it. Let me make it up to you. But he kind of turns it back on a little bit by playing on uh, Disa's emotions with Elrond. I thought that was a really well-written uh, scene.
1: So the whole idea is that Elrond is trying to get Durin to come help make this forge for the Rings of Power, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, we, I don't think, have they said the rings yet? I don't think they've mentioned rings yet. No, no. I think think we can assume that it's rings of, is that a fairly safe assumption?
2: I don't want to spoil it, but I already nodded. So that's
1: good. That was a, that was a test done. (laughs) But, but I mean, the title of the show is the rings of power, you know, and they're trying to create something, some amazing jewelry. Uh, I'm guessing it's for the Rings of Power. Um, So will Durin help or not? I think he's debating it with his father in the final scene of the second episode. Right? Yes, yes.
2: This is uh, Durin in their in their last portion. We see Durin the Third having a conversation with Durin the Fourth, and um, they they I've I've referred to it as the Pulp Fiction scene because they lift up the briefcase. There's a big (laughs) shiny uh light coming out of it and uh okay
1: so you have a guess for what it is based off of your knowledge i do um so i'm gonna let don guess but if you're listening or watching this right now you don't want to know what it is because don's probably right skip forward by 30 seconds 60 seconds and uh but don what do you think is in that case that's at the end of episode two that during the third and fourth are talking about i think
2: that this is mithril And I think we are going to see the discovery of Mithril by using the resonance. And I think we could also potentially see with this Mithril the creation of something called Ithildin or Star Moon, which is what they use to make the doors in Moria that we see in Fellowship of the
1: Ring. All right. Um, so it's the doors in Fellowship of the Ring. Also, what else is Mithril used for in Fellowship of the Ring?
2: Mithril is used for... Uh, Isn't the, it on
1: his armor as well?
2: Yes, Frodo has a uh, a Mithril shirt.
0: Mm.
1: All right.
2: Protects him from, it's, it's pretty much indestructible.
1: That is the Galadriel, Elrond, and Durin storylines for the first two episodes of the Rings of Power. Um, I thought these were the strongest plotlines, I yeah. say. you say. Yeah. You know, we're going to talk three. about the other stuff that happens, but like... This was the strongest material in the in the first two episodes. And uh, uh, especially the Elrond Durin stuff, you really get a sense of like those characters, their families, their dynamics um, in a way that I don't even think you get with Galadriel, really. Because Galadriel is kind of a fairly, again, archetypical character who's like, I got to fight the evil, you know, but like. <laughs> With Elrond and Durin, you you get a sense of like, hey, these characters have a history and they've been through yeah. some things, and you know, and I like that a little bit more. The Elrond Galadriel stuff is also pretty good. Um,
0: yeah, and these I, three I interconnect.
1: I, yeah, I wish there was more Galadriel kind of talking with normal people. Basically, <laughs> is kind of what I'm saying, right? Like having <laughs> normal interactions with people. So. Mm-hmm. All right, Don Marshall, before we get to uh, the other plot lines in this uh, first two episodes of The Rings of Power, um, let's talk a little bit about where people can find more of your work on the internet. You're listening to this for many thousands of people. This will be the first time they've heard Don Marshall talk at length about anything. Uh, And they're loving it. They're like, (laughs) this is amazing. I want to hear more of this. Where can people find more of your work, Don?
2: I... Nem, known as Don Marshall 72 across every social media platform you can find me on. I'm on TikTok mostly, host uh, about 580,000 followers there. I'm also on Instagram. Um, I'm on YouTube where I post, um, the bird overlord, uh, story where a couple of my friends and I are playing a sort of Dungeons and Dragons-esque TTRPG style game uh, where we're doing that. Um, So if you have any interest, go check out YouTube. I'm on Twitter um, and just pretty much doing the whole social media content creator thing. But yeah, Don Marshall, 72 everywhere.
1: And if you're enjoying this conversation and want to get access to more like it, um, you can listen to the free version of this podcast at podcast.decodingtv.com. Support this show at decodingtv.com. Find us on YouTube at youtube.com/slash Decoding TV, and also we'll be on TikTok at uh, tiktok.com/slash at Decoding TV as well. So uh, find us at, across all the different locations uh, at Decoding TV.
0: A lot can happen in the next three years, like a chatbot, maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN.
1: All right, Don. A couple of other plot lines in this episode. Let's do it. All right. There is the... Uh, the Harfoots. Let's talk about the yes. Harfoots real quick. Okay. Uh, what are Harfoots done, Marshall?
2: All right. So
1: are they hobbits? Are they not hobbits? Like what's the deal? With
2: here's hobbits? the thing. We're we're going to get a little bit meta here, right? We're going to, we're going to sort of peer back behind the curtain of this story to discuss <laughs> okay. book rights and what you can name certain things. Um, but I'll make it quick. The Harfoots are, you can think of them like the hobbits ancestors or the proto hobbits. Um and the reason that they are not hobbits specifically um, is because hobbits in Tolkien's lore did not come around until the Third Age. There's no written history of them uh, sort of in their, their wanderings of the many parts of Middle Earth. We get three families of hobbits that sort of begin their journey, and that is the stores the fallow hides and the harfoots and those three families lived in a place not too far from like the lothlorian fangorn ish area called the Vales of the anduin and they journeyed because of various battles and famines and diseases and all uh they journeyed to uh the other side of the misty mountains and then eventually um might be a spoiler but uh the Shire exists, and I'll leave it at that. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm, okay, got it. And so, so, so think of these as like the uh, Hobbit light, the Hobbits' ancestors, the Hobbit
1: adjacents that are mm-hmm. leading towards the Hobbits. And why why do we think they couldn't just be called Hobbits in this uh, in this franchise?
2: That I think is a rights issue. Um, I think there are there are certain. Because-
1: but I thought Amazon had the rights to the Hobbit, though, right? I
2: believe they. I could be wrong about this, yeah. but if I'm remembering correctly, they only got the rights to the Hobbit after they had already written and potentially filmed mm. a lot of their
1: um, a lot of their stuff. They and couldn't so when, ADR in the word Hobbit every time someone said Harfoot. Uh, they certainly <laughs> could try. I don't know how people would feel yeah. about that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, anyway. They're basically hobbits, but we'll call them Harfoots just to humor the show. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, Okay. So we meet the Harfoots, and there is a scene where they're kind of out in the fields, and uh, they have these, like, massive moose antler like things on their the, back so right? these are
2: these are just two normal sized human hunters that visually are very cool but even even i don't know why they have the sort of megafauna <laughs> antlers on their back i yes. love the visual it was very cool but i'm like um what and it was just a nice <laughs> little little aside yeah, yeah. Uh,
1: sorry so those were not the harfords those are humans no, no that then the the harfords saw them though i believe yes right? is that right yes and they, they, they hide the, from the big people yeah yeah they have an interaction and uh, and we kind of meet, like, all the different Harfoots, like, real quickly. Um, but the the main ones are going to be Nori and yes. her friend Poppy. Is that yes.
2: Right? So Nori, uh, there's another character in The Lord of the Rings that is also named Nori. Some some people got confused. I believe her name is Eleonora or Eleanor. I don't remember mm-hmm. which one. Um, But, yes, Eleanor, Nori, uh, and then Poppy are sort of the, the two friends that are definitely giving me some Merry and
1: Pippin vibes as well. Mm, yes. Yes. Um or perhaps Frodo and Samwise? vibes? Uh, a, a little
2: bit. The, Poppy seems a bit more uh mischievous or excuse me, uh Nori seems a bit more mischievous. Uh so that's where I'm kind of getting like like it wouldn't right. surprise me if Nori grabbed a firework and launched it in a tent just like Mary and Pippin did.
1: Yeah, I guess cuz Frodo was like I don't want to do this adventure necessarily, right? And Nori is like I want to get out, I want to see the world. Yeah. I want to yeah. get out, to get to the big city, you know, like and uh yeah. <laughs> yeah uh so eventually nori discovers this meteor man that's descended from the sky but before yeah. we get to that i guess is there any other details or things you want to call out about uh, i will say like the detail on the harfoot society is really impressive just like the people hiding in trees the tools that they're using the books mm-hmm. that they're using like the the way the uh, little town is production design like it's all very impressive yeah um, yeah but i'm curious if there's anything else you want to call out
2: uh Calling out specifically, I will say that the Harfoots. I think I need to take my uh, your advice to me. No thoughts, just vibes. The Harfoots to me are no thoughts, just vibes. <laughs> just enjoy them. Um, you know, worry about the stranger later. But I'll, I'll, every every time. I heard the music the penny whistle I, I was reminded of the Shire or every you know video game I've ever played that has a a starting village tutorial they it brought back and evoked such emotion of like oh these quaint little cute creatures um this is this is so great I love the scenery I love the tools I thought Lenny Henry did an amazing job uh as as Sadok the this like old wizened gray hobbit Uh, excuse me, Harfoot. That is just (laughs) like, even I'm doing it. (laughs) Yeah. Oh boy. Nice. (laughs) Um, But yeah, it it definitely feels um, it almost. And I don't know how true this is going to be. But because of the, the rights and various things, I always kind of assumed, maybe incorrectly, that the Harfoots are going to be kind of like that Rosencrantz and Guildenstern style in Hamlet where like they're not going to add much to the plot. They're just going mm. to be this little aside that we can go to and sort of explain a little bit and provide some context. And maybe Meteor Man will mess up my theory on that. Um,
1: I, I think your theory is well true and dead at, even at this point, Don. Like I, I would be; sh- They are clearly, in my opi- opinion positioning nori as like a major character this season i I would argue right yeah no no Uh, it feels that way too who i think is played wonderfully by markella cavanaugh like she gets a lot of emotional moments during this episode where Mm -hmm. you really again it's very galadriel-esque where like you feel like this longing of wanting something beyond what life has given you Yeah. yeah uh and i think she does a great job conveying that and taking care of this meteor man becomes part of that but uh but interesting to note kind of what you thought the Harford plotline would be, which is kind of a throwaway where it's like, I think, you know, I haven't seen the whole show yet, Don, but like there, at least at this moment seems to be a distinct possibility. Nori is going to be like one of the pillars of the show. I don't know. I don't know. We but, shall see. I guess I'm just describing how much of an impression that character made on me, you know? Um, Cause I thought she made a lot with fairly, fairly little in terms of plot that happens this episode. Mm-hmm.
2: Um, yeah. Uh, two, two other things I do want to quickly call out before we, uh, we head, head south to the Southlands. Um, there were two really amazing moments um, that were great details. Um, Nori does a really cool gesture when she is telling this this meteor man, um, the stranger, as he's known, uh, does this cool gesture when she says, I'm Nori. And it reminded me, because I've, I've had some experience in the American Sign Language uh, community, of, of name signs where she does a a sign i believe she puts her
0: head, yeah. her
2: hand to the top of her head and pushes it out in a sort of letter almost i thought that was a really cool touch i don't know if that was intentionally like having some asl representation but i really like that that was a that was a really cool just like moment for me yeah. um and then the second uh thing is and I, do you want to get to sort of like discussion heavy on who the stranger is or do we just want to sort of let that one ride
1: i think we have to acknowledge that there has been tons of speculation on who the stranger is on the internet Mm -hmm. Um, don probably knows who it is I actually
2: uh, don't.
1: Well, you you have a very good guess as to who it is, right? I
2: have I have three guesses, and I am not Ooh. sure about any of them. And that okay. is kind of the the most exciting part for me, is that I don't know where this character's going.
1: All right, all right. So Don is going to guess right now on the show, but like if you don't want to know what the guess is, skip forward a little bit. But Don, g- give us your number one guess, wh- who I think is like what everyone is saying it is. Sure. Wh- who, who is the stranger in this show?
2: I think the stranger is either... One of the wizards, or I think he is a Balrog. Now hear me out. Now hear what? me out. I thought you said Gandalf. I know. I was originally going to say Gandalf. <laughs> yeah, that but I, was in the notes. <laughs> it was in the notes. And
1: then You're calling it Audible.
2: <laughs> I, I am, but this is this is something that a friend of mine explained to me not like twelve hours ago. Um, so I want to do a, a brief tidbit of information. That is sort of a, a bit of obscure facts that will sort of maybe won't let people know who he is, but is a, a nice little language obscure fact. So the stranger has something that he yells mm. in this um, in this one scene with Nori, and he after, says after he
1: wakes up and he's yes. kind of like he like needs something,
2: right? Yes, 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 yes. So he is he's he's carving these things on the on the ground, um, yeah. and he says two words, and I watched it with subtitles the second time. He says mana. Ure, M-A-N-A, mana, and ure, U-R-E. Now, when you look up the Elvish, mana is a sort of question word meaning who or what, and ure uh, can mean heat. Um, And there are a couple of of theories out there because, as folks that have seen the the, uh, Fellowship of the Ring movie, Gandalf says, I am a servant of the secret fire. And so there is this idea of like what fire or uh, mm-hmm. who is the fire? What is the fire? And so that is kind of where I got my Gandalf idea. A friend of mine explained. Well, we should
1: also point out, by the way, there's that moment when he kind of whispers to the fireflies or yes. whatever, right? And beautiful that, that mirrors scene. a scene that happens in, uh, in the fellowship trilogy, right? When, where when he Gen- talks
2: to the moth and, yes. and whisks the moth away. Yes, exactly. Yes. Yeah. Um, beautiful scene, by the way, the fireflies was yeah. kind of heartbreaking. Uh, I think um, Megan, did a great job with poppy in that scene when all of the sorry i'm getting ahead of myself and yeah distracted okay but, but
1: you originally thought it was gandalf which is a very re- reasonable yes uh,
2: guess, yes and
1: a lot of people are are guessing it's gandalf on that mm-hmm. right
2: i i think also though because balrogs are in essence uh shape and they are what's known as a maya they're called mayar they are basically like um uh, I mentioned before the Ainur, the 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 children of thought that the God in Tolkien's universe made ages and ages ago at the beginning of time. There is sort of like a subset of Ainur who are known as Maiar, and they're not as powerful. Gandalf uh, is is one, Sauron is one. These aren't spoilers; these are just you know yeah. tidbits of you know power levels. Um, but they're also They're also shapeshifters there are many maya in the second age that transform to uh take uh different forms to help various to help out with various uh tasks that need to be sort of uh completed and i won't go too deep into that but the idea that perhaps this stranger will change shape eventually uh, is certainly certainly on my mind hmm and the fact that he mentions now, now the,
1: the Balrog is the massive creature that is vanquished in, I think, the first Lord of the Rings movie. Is that right? Yes.
2: Yes. The the Balrogs were originally way back in the first stage. I was actually kind of hoping we would see one in the prologue because they're mm-hmm. used in battle in the first stage when Morgoth is fighting against the armies of, of the elves. Um, And when Morgoth is defeated at the end of the first stage, the Balrogs run. All right, they they flee to the, the deepest parts of of the earth. So, gotcha. um, the, the Balrog theory for me doesn't really hold up as much. But when he mentioned heat and the fact that it's a shapeshifter, my friend was like kind of egging me on a little bit. So,
1: you you really think it's the Balrog and not Gandalf, Don? No, I just I want it. Come part, on, man. A part of me is thinking that it's like <laughs>
2: it's so clearly one of the wizards and probably Gandalf that like. Mm-hmm. I'm just waiting for I could like see
1: being another wizard. That'd be cool. It's like yeah. another non yeah, Gandalf wizard. You yeah. Know, if, that's it's, a,
2: that's if it's uh, one of the blue wizards, Alatar or Palando that we we don't really see but we know of in the books, um, could be one of them. I don't know.
1: I think you're getting too far into it, Don. Yeah. I think you're getting. Thinking... I think. I think <laughs> no it's thoughts. it's probably. Well, I'm just saying. I'm just saying. You know, you had a great guess, Gandalf, <laughs> and now you're like, but what if it's not? What if it's the shape shifting Balrog instead? <laughs> now. If you're right, then it's like wow, uh, I'm a genius. One of the greatest calls of all, like one well, greatest predictions of all time. But <laughs> you heard it, feels, it here. Feels unlikely. It feels, I don't know, based on the show so far that we've been presented with, it doesn't feel mm-hmm. like they would pull a twist like that. Like, oh, this person that uh, Nori has been helping all time is actually bad. You know, like I don't, it, it doesn't feel like the, yeah, the, the show would do that. You know, that's
2: why I'm leaning more towards the wizard thing. I just, I just kind of <laughs> like the idea of like. Maybe they are trying to to mm-hmm. pull a fast one on us, but, right, uh, but yeah, that's the, the Harfoots have, I'll, I'll quote my, my, uh, good friend, Tori, the Harfoots have my whole heart. And mm-hmm. that is, I think going to be true. If anything happens to Nori or Poppy, I will be
1: very upset. Yes. But also it's probably Gandalf or a wizard. And, <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. Yeah. I don't know. You tell me, you tell me, Don. Okay. Um, <laughs> We should also point out that Nori feels bad because she's hanging out with a stranger when her dad's foot gets injured. Oh, God, and apparently there's a, big, there's a big migration coming up, which I didn't even know about. It's like, there's a migration happening. It's like, is he going to be able to migrate? Who knows? Don't know. Don't know. Um, but either way, uh, things with the stranger are getting more complicated by the day. So, mm-hmm. so that is Harfoot, Nori, the Harfoots, Nori, Poppy, and the stranger. Mm-hmm. Final plotline: Bronwyn. Uh, who is human yes arundir who is an elf theo who's bronwyn's child yes we are in the southlands uh we meet these characters that i just outlined uh there is tension between the elves and the humans and i had this question of like are the elves like an occupying force basically trying to keep away the evil sauron aka the terrorists like what is what is the relationship between humans and elves because there's clearly a lot of resentment
2: yeah there is there is a lot of resentment and this is again where i think that the prologue could have maybe done a little bit of a better job explaining could have gone into a little bit more detail um we're in the southlands and the southlands are uh where the humans that sided with morgoth in the first age are and to humans that was generations ago mm. right we we see that one kid yelling about it to uh to Arendir when he walks into that that pub um or bar i guess i should say tavern but to elves what's five or six generations of humans, right? They're just, right. It's not, it, you know, yeah. So they're
1: basically still evil as far as elves are concerned. Basically.
2: Not necessarily still evil, evil, but like,
1: <sighs> well, the, the elf gives a speech of like, just remember, these are like terrible people. Remember, right, right. remember Aaron, dear, they're awful. Yeah. A,
2: a, but I think, <laughs> I think that elf gave that speech to sort of remind the audience that like, you know, not all humans are bad. And after a while, maybe the evil will sort itself out. Um, and there is, perhaps another evil that is uh Mm -hmm. that is coming i do also i I found it really interesting in that scene where the um where the humans were interacting with with arundir that they chose to put ishmael cruz cordova the this the first black elf in middle earth in a situation where he is uh disliked because of who he is i thought that was a very interesting choice to sort of put him there he's the
1: aggressor i guess the yeah you know in this situation yeah
2: yeah it was it was a very it was a very sort of complex choice i i understand introducing it to sort of like immediately identify that the the tension of the scene and the dynamic between the elves and the and the um Mm -hmm. and the humans um yeah i'm still i'm still sort of mulling that one over that one that one didn't quite uh sit as well with me but i'm again i'm gonna i'm gonna wait and see how it goes but we we have this sort of tender romance uh to right to focus you, you,
1: on you're saying it doesn't sit right with you probably because like it creates like an unfortunate parallel with like our, our real society that, yeah. that, it, that it doesn't like it doesn't um feel fully thought out or explored yet certainly in this episode right because mm-hmm. um I will say, watching the show, it feels pretty race blind in terms of the casting. In in some ways, yeah. right? Yeah, and so I agree. There's this is idea there's this idea of race blind casting, where like you you know you cast people of all different races in all the different kind of roles and character types. And there are many benefits to that approach, um, but it also gets complicated uh, if you can't acknowledge real world racial realities that we live in. You know, in our society yeah uh and i is that kind of the yeah year yeah that was that, yeah, was that was yeah, the yeah. thing
2: i was kind of feeling and yeah. thank you for putting it way more eloquently than i did but yeah that was that was kind of no where worries. Was
1: at. yeah but it, it, and it's like uh i i agree we'll see if the show has anything to say about race i doubt it I yeah doubt no it. or or if it does have anything to say about race it will do it using like you know elves versus humans as a yeah but, that's but again the the presence of um of black elves may complicate any kind of clean racial metaphor that it's attempting. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But I I
2: definitely, I definitely don't think because I heard a lot of, a lot of this uh, in the sort of, in my comment section from very angry people, it's like, (laughs) they are just trying to push their own political agenda. I did not get that at all right in in
1: any of this if anything maybe they didn't push the po- political agenda enough you know <laughs> <Yeah>. like- <laughs> you,
2: you, it was right there it was right yeah. there you could have done it a lot more heavy-handed but no i think i think yeah. the way they handled it was uh was was the, the right approach
1: at least it's a, it's been a light touch for now and yeah i i guess we should call out that there has been um controversies i don't even think it's the right word no a lot of really angry people Uh, with not, not a very particularly good reason to be angry about it, uh, complaining that there's black people in middle earth. And I think, uh, I I believe you've made some TikToks about this in the past on, and, uh, I don't think we need to like relitigate the entire thing. No, no, no. Um, But suffice to say that, uh, you know, Tolkien didn't do much to specify, uh, race, like skin characteristics of the characters right there is a little bit but not that much and so um the depiction of different races in the show or different species in the show as different races uh feels very you know not not uh compatible i should or it feels very compatible with Tolkien's yeah vision it's, of it's what a not it's a
2: non-factor for me yeah it's a non- yeah. non-factor
1: for me 100 percent
2: agreed um we're on the same page so. and I, yeah and I, I do kind of kind of like the idea that we are are having this sort of like uh not necessarily romance, because I don't think they've even kissed yet, but between Bronwyn and Arendir and this kind of like wonderful moment of of tenderness by the well, when we we get to see this sort of like inclusivity of, right, here's this woman and that's a human and here's this elf. And we, we know about a human and elf that fell in love. I wonder if we're going to get those same sort of vibes.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, there's also a reference to two other instances in which a human and elf has fallen in love. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is a polygon story about this. This morning about humans and and elf relationships and how like Aaron Deere's buddy was probably mischaracterizing uh, how well those relationships ended up, which were not necessarily (laughs) in catastrophe. Right.
2: Yeah. So 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 the the references are uh, the first one. Uh, is Beren and Lúthien who I actually mentioned before when we were talking about Galadriel because when she's in the grove we see that that dog in front of the elf statue that dog Huon helps Beren and Lúthien uh on one of their quests uh in the first age um and then the other one is uh I'm completely blanking on it right now uh Tuor and Idril and they are a uh Tuor is the human Idril is a an, an elf princess They are again another first age, um, couple that, um, are, you know, on a quest. There's a city called Gondolin. There's a lot of first age backstory. Um, but for the most part, both of those, um, you know, stories ended relatively happy. Uh, but it was after quite a lot of hardship. Mm. Um, so I think, I think it was, I, I read it as this elf kind of saying, Hey, look, buddy, you're my friend. You know how, (laughs) you know how bad it was for the other two. Right. Yeah. The stereotyping they had to deal with, the the anger between the human friends of theirs and the elf friends of theirs, like it was it wasn't good. But in the end, as so much of Tolkien's uh uh world um focuses on, is that love and friendship and companionship uh can, can conquer and, and win out in the end.
1: Yeah. I will say despite that uh I think this is the relationship that feels the least interesting to me on the show like it's just these are two good-looking folks they're hanging out and it's like that's mostly it you know we we get a sense of them referring to all the romance that they have had which hasn't even been that much he's like you know I I've already said it with everything but words. And it's like, okay, I guess it's just been a bunch of furtive glances for the last however many years. Um, felt
2: felt slightly more like Aaron Deer is definitely like that nervous teenager that doesn't have the courage <laughs> to, to ask his crush yeah. to the prom. <laughs>
1: exactly. Um, so, you know, not, I'm not like, oh, I'm really invested in like how the romance turns out yet. We'll see. They're probably going to go through a bunch of trials, and that, that'll be interesting. But they go to Hordern, right? Because mm-hmm. uh, there is a cow that this guy brings, and he's like, hey, something's wrong with my cow. Uh, we should point out that uh, Bronwyn is like a medicinal healer. Healer. Yeah, she's like a yeah. healer,
2: healer woman, and this cursed chocolate milk comes out of this cow, and it's just become... Oh,
1: it's... I mean, it's incredible because you you look at this cow... You know, like you as a viewer, look at this cow. You see him grab the udder of the cow and it's like all in one shot. It's not like, yeah. I don't think it's a close up. I don't recall. Maybe it's a close up, but he squeezed. It looks like it's whatever it is. It looks like it's part of the living cow. Yeah. And he squeezes it and this black ooze comes out and it's like, wow, that's really, I don't think I've ever seen anything like that before. Like. Uh, Black ooze it, coming out of a cow. What an uh, uh, unsettling visual, you know. It, it was and, so
2: unsettling for me. Like I'm not a horror movie fan by any means, mm. um and that for me because I wasn't expecting. I was like, oh, maybe there's a there's a sore on its side, or it it has yeah. some sort of scars from before. But no, it's just straight uh, up like ugh,
1: upsetting. It, yeah. Oh, upsetting, it, yeah. It, it gave me shivers. Yeah. So they go to hordorn and they find it in ashes, and there's like a big tunnel underneath, like one of the buildings, I guess. Uh, a secret tunnel, if you will. C- secret tunnel, but that clearly has been uh, dug by a creature with intelligence. Mm-hmm. Um, and Aaron Deers like, well, I'm going to go down there and figure out what's <laughs> down there. And it's orcs. It's orcs, right? Orcs are down there. Orcs are yeah. crawling everywhere. Yeah. Ronwyn goes back home. They encounter an orc at her house. Um, what a can we bit, can
2: we talk about that scene real quick? Do we have?
1: Yeah, let's. I'm going to say, I thought the scene when Bronwyn and her child encounter an orc was weird because she goes into her, the way it's staged is very odd. And we should mm-hmm. say J.A. Bayona directed uh, this, these, these two, two episodes. episodes. Yeah. Super talented director. He's made uh, the orphanage and also Jurassic world. Fallen King. And this guy knows how to do horror movie sequences. And I found the staging of this one to be really bizarre because he, she goes in, she like finds her son there. He's like, run and it's like okay i guess the orc is taking a break or whatever and then she like runs away without her child like that just didn't make any sense to me that she wouldn't take him with him
0: yeah uh, it-
1: and, and then they have a big fight and the fight was cool. That fight was yeah. awesome, right? That fight then, was like, great. They're yeah. just like, trying to like stab him in different ways until he's finally is dead. But yeah. anyway, what were your thoughts on the scene, Doc? I
2: so, so that part, I agree with you on. It didn't quite make sense to me in that, you know, mother leaving her child or going to go get help and then immediately just trying to hide. Probably could have been staged a little bit better. Um, that being said, I saw this in IMAX for the first time. So the second time I watched it, it looked so much better. I loved the the idea of like the the like Chekhov's gun, right? Or there's a bomb under the table or something. This is Chekhov's orc to me, right? You know, there's an orc in the house. It's just a matter of time before chaos ensues. And I loved. I didn't like seeing it on the big screen because it was a little too shaky. But when you sort of zoom out and you're able to look at all of it, um, I loved how this was staged and I loved how they finally made one orc. Absolutely terrifying. Because when you watch the the trilogy movies, right? You are looking at this going, oh my gosh, Legolas, 33, 34, 35. They're just <laughs> mowing them down. Mm-hmm. And Legolas literally have a contest to see how many they can kill. They don't feel like they're in danger or anything yet. But then there's just this one orc and it's a mom and her kid. And suddenly orcs feel almost, it gave me like, um, is it 28 days? Then, then 28 Days Later that has the fast-running zombies. Yes, that's Yeah, correct. It felt very much – I got that same vibe of like, I'm going to be feral. I'm going to pounce on you, and I'm going to do everything I can to mess you up because it's fight or flight right now, and we're fighting. Yeah. So I, I really liked well, how they
1: – yeah, that that part was great, and when like they basically try multiple things to to, to destroy the orc and it doesn't work, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, they try like stabbing him, and the the kid tries to like use a noose on him, and then like it doesn't doesn't uh, and work, then it breaks, and it's like it's like yeah, it's a really cool sort of series of things. Um, so uh, th- when when they finally have the confrontation with the orc, it's great. Everything leading up to the confrontation a little f- felt a little manufactured to me. A little bit, um, a little bit. You know, why? What, what, he's right there. Come on, get out of the hole. Let's run away. You know,
2: yeah. Let's both run away.
1: <laughs> let's very run easy. away. There's um, there's a
2: probably a very easy fix for that. And like, if you heard a footstep, maybe I need to rewatch it. Maybe I just missed something. But like, maybe she hears the orc upstairs, or or if there's right, some, right yeah. as.
1: Uh, uh, I will say, having just watched it, I was like, "It's weird." Anyway, but yes, the the fight with the orc is great, and I agree with yes. you; it does make the orc scary. And then when she does cut the orc's head off, oh, it's very sa- it's very satisfying. It's like my whole yes.
2: theater cheered when that yeah. happened. That it's was a awesome.
1: great moment. That's awesome. Yeah. So okay, so then they're like, "Hey, we gotta go because there's orcs here." We leave at dawn. I was right. watching this with some friends. They're like, "Why not leave right away?" <laughs> but whatever, <laughs> we're gonna put that aside for now. <laughs> um, they're they're leaving uh, the kid. Uh,
2: Theo, Theo, played Theo, by uh, Tyro Muhafdeen,
1: yeah, has a uh, extremely evil looking sword. Don, mm-hmm,
2: mm-hmm. what's
1: what's the deal with this sword? Are we, do we know at this point? I don't <sighs> think so. Right? We, we
2: don't know what the sword is. And again, I I have my guesses just based on my knowledge. It um, looks
1: like Sauron equipment. Based yeah, on so like, what so we, the mark yeah.
2: the mark of Sauron is on the blade. Yes, um, that that uh, Theo holds, um, and that leads me to believe that it may be some kind of um i have a lot of theories uh but i i think it i think we may be seeing one of the morgal blades and uh, mm-hmm. uh, aragorn mentions this after frodo is stabbed by the ringwraith he's been stabbed by a morgal blade and in that same way that the morgal blade part disappears off of the hilt in the movie it is sort of to me sort of remade um in this in this um in this sequence uh, and gains a little bit more of that uh of that blade
1: i think what this whole situation points to is the fact that public education in middle earth (laughs) is in dire need of reform because it's like you gotta you're gonna carry this (laughs) evil looking blade you're living a world of magical powers kid don't carry the evil blade with you. There Mm-mm. is this amazing shot in the episode when she's like, Hey, are you ready to go? She, you know, he opens the door. are you ready to go? And you see in the background, all these people like carrying all their belongings. And it's a great shot. Through. It's like amazing. And you see the shot for like three seconds and it's like, wow, that's like one of the most beautiful shots I've ever seen. You know, it's, and that's what happens throughout the episode. But anyway, the kid is being dumb because he's a kid <laughs> and bringing evil blade with them. is going to cause complications, but yeah, you know, but, but you know, He's a kid, so what are you going to do? Yeah. All right. All right. Well, that is a very fast... (laughs) Despite the fact that we've been talking for almost two hours, I (laughs) I feel like we sped sped through a lot of the details. Is there anything else you want to mention, Don, about the first two episodes of The Lord of the Rings, The Rings of Power, and Prime Video?
2: Uh I have a crazy theory that I can tell you off show, or we can sort of get into it real quick.
1: Maybe but. we'll say, let's save it for a bonus episode. Okay. We'll um, save it for bonus but, episode. Cause I have a yeah. super
2: crazy theory that involves uh, several characters and sort of how they are il- interlinked. But I think that this was a great start. Um, I, I don't want to speak for the rest of the, of the series. Cause obviously you've you not seen
1: any for, other episodes. I have
2: not. No, one. I yeah. have not seen any other uh, episodes, but I think the way they started for me at least, they captured the spirit of what it means to be back in Middle-earth. I liked uh a lot of the characters. I don't know if I loved all of them. There were a few uh points that sort of missed the mark for me. Uh some of the choices were uh not what I would have done, but again, that I'm nitpicking at this point, but overall I I think this was a really well done really well done um
1: uh show. Yeah, so far. I agree even if you don't like the story, which I think at this point, we don't really know enough about it to know whether we're going to like it, right? Like, I I think we'll have a pretty clear idea. When we get to the end of episode eight, we're going to know, oh, that was very satisfying. Or, oh, wow. Like, it feels like they're still doing setup. You know, like, I think we'll have a pretty clear idea. But even if you don't like the story, this is, one of the most interesting shows ever made because there's just so many interesting elements to it. It's the most expensive first season of a TV show ever made. Um, it's something that is obviously going to help dictate Amazon's streaming future. It's a recreation of this universe that has become so popular because of Peter Jackson's films. And so you're, you you kind of get to in, like compare and contrast mm-hmm. looks amazing. Uh, it's an exercise in prequel storytelling to see like, how well can you tell an interesting story and answer those questions I referred to earlier in the episode, right? Does it make what comes later more interesting? Does it make sense when you fit it, when you like put it next to what comes later and so on? Um, so I like the first two episodes. I think uh, very open questions to how the rest of the show is going to go and which storylines it's going to focus on. Like if the whole rest of the show ends up being very Aaron dear heavy, you know, <laughs> Aaron Deere and Bronwyn and Theo Heavy, I'm gonna be like, I'm not loving yeah. this so much, just because it's just from what we saw in this episode, not the most interesting material. Yeah. Um, and, and and
2: I'm I'm giving it I'm giving it a chance to to sort of pick up uh because I don't again, I don't want to judge it based on yeah. just the stuff that I wasn't thrilled about, but no, I, I think if if by the end of, like you said, if by the end of eight episodes uh we've got a, a pretty firm foundation, I'll I'll be pretty happy if they continue with it.
1: I think the Galadriel stuff is solid. I think the Elrond stuff is solid. The Durin stuff is solid. Like, I'm really looking forward to spending more time with those characters. And I really like the Nori character. And I'm curious where where the Nori character... Like, what is the Nori character's journey going to be this season? Mm -hmm. Because she wants to... You know, she wants to go on an adventure. Like, Frodo didn't really want to go on an Mm-mm. adventure Mm-mm. uh i think uh bilbo was like kind of psyched about it right He, i don't think he was actively seeking it out necessarily no. but he like he like was kind of like nori like wants adventure so the question mm-hmm. is is she going to get it and and how and is it going to cost her and you know so i a lot of potential with that character um and I'm very curious, you know not, not that Don sees it, <laughs> but, but a lot of potential with the Nori character uh that I am curious how they're going to uh to play that out, so yeah, um, well, we hope you have enjoyed listening slash watching this episode of decoding t v uh and we'll be back next week with another recap of the Lord of the Rings, The Rings of Power, to discuss episode three next week. in the meantime, he is Don Marshall, I am David Chen. Thank you so much for watching and listening. We'll see you later. Bye.
0: Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states.